I have, uh, with each uh, man that has been newly ordained in our congregation, I've preached a sermon on um, ordination. And uh, so this morning, uh, I am doing that from Hebrews chapter 13. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we worship you. We thank you for your word. Help us to not only hear and understand, but to obey your word. And so help us to remember the elders uh, that have gone before us, the leaders that have gone before us who have spoken the word. Help us to obey and uh, submit to their leadership as this passage calls us to do. Uh, be with Sylvester and, uh, and bless him and Tiffany and their family as he is coming to be uh, ordained as an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name, amen. I am not a big fan of Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president of the United States. His political views are very different from my own particularly his foreign policy decisions following World War I. I think his insistence on the creation of the League of Nations laid an unhealthy foundation in Europe, which enabled the rise of Hitler and created the conditions that led to the start of World War II. That being said, my life intersects with Woodrow Wilson in a very interesting way. I was married in the same church um, where he got married 107 years earlier. Uh, he married the daughter of the pastor of Independent Presbyterian Church. Mandy was going there, and I finagled an internship to get there and pursue her. I caught her <laughs> and married her. And um, so uh, he got married I think around 1885, 1886, or, or thereabouts, in that same church. Woodrow Wilson's father was also a Presbyterian pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, uh, Georgia, and that church is in the PCA today. I am a fan of one thing that Woodrow Wilson said shortly after taking office as president. Some reporter approached him on his inauguration day and exclaimed that this must be the proudest day of his life. Surprisingly, he said it was not his proudest day. He said that the day he became an elder in the Presbyterian church was much more significant to him than even becoming president. Today we are ordaining Sylvester Pittman to become an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Woodrow Wilson was right. Becoming an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is very significant. The Apostle Paul says that becoming an elder is noble. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and if you look in Acts chapter 20, an overseer is an elder. An elder is an overseer. Um, so if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. It is a noble task because an elder serves as a vice-regent 
of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. An elder serves as an under-shepherd for the great shepherd. An elder seeks to lead the church and to shepherd people's souls according to the direction and wisdom given to us in the Holy Scriptures. It is a noble task indeed. The writer of Hebrews would agree. Therefore, in our text, we read in verse 7 of Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to get as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's not the title that gives the office of an elder significance and nobility. Rather, it is the work that an elder does that gives it its nobility. The Apostle Paul says that being an elder is a noble task. In our text, in verse 17, the work of an elder uh, includes keeping watch over the souls of the people in the congregation. Are the individual members of the congregation uh, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior? Is He your Lord and Savior? It'll be part of Sylvester's work to determine that. To quiz you. If you died tonight, do you know for certain you'd go to heaven? Well, say you did die and you stood before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What, how would you answer? And so that's part of the work that God has given. Uh, Sylvester has given all the elders in his church. Sylvester's also to know whether the members of the church are growing in their faith. And so he might ask you, are you reading your script, the Bible? How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? How's your prayer life? And elders does not only have a shepherding eye on individuals, but an elder also should has, have his eye on the congregation as a whole. Is the congregation growing in maturity in the as the, the body of Christ, or the, the membership as a whole, growing up into Him who is our head. He's also to ask, is the, tr- the teaching remaining faithful to the Holy Scriptures? He is to be examining my teaching, and the teaching that goes on in the church, uh, and examine it by the Scriptures. He's supposed to have his eye out to see if any wolves has slipped in among the sheep. And so these are some of the things that an elder is to be doing. In verse 17, we read that elders are going to have to stand in front of God and give an account of themselves and the work that they did as elders. Look again at verse 17. The second little phrase says, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give 
an account. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, Paul is, is speaking of how God is going to examine the work of an elder. A lot of, there's been some error concerning this passage over the last 30, 40 years. A lot of people have come to think that this passage is talking about some sort of carnal Christian, a Christian who proclaims Christ and is saved, but slips into heaven by the skin of his teeth. That's not what this is talking about at all. Rather, it's talking about God judging and examining the work of an elder, the work of a pastor. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Beginning with verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And he's talking about the, an, an elder who is not doing his work well, who is not being faithful and destroys um, uh, the, 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 the assurance of um, one of God's people. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Looking back at our text, going back to Hebrews 13, verse 7, the congregation is instructed to remember their leaders. But there's a very important qualification attached. The congregation is to remember their leaders who, as it says here in the Scriptures, who spoke the Word of God to them. The ministry of the Word in the lives of the congregation, was the primary reason why the elders were to be remembered. The Word of God is what the people of God need to hear. Speaking, teaching, proclaiming the Word of God is the central task of an elder. Not just for myself as a teaching elder, as a pastor, but for all the elders, teaching or ruling elders. It is deeply concerning that the, the primacy of Scripture is being pushed to the sidelines in many evangelical churches. Pop psychology and self-help uh, advice is being sprinkled with some Bible verses to form the content of Christian counseling. In the pulpit, three stories and an application is being substituted for the exposition and proclamation of God's Word. Um, more is being done to, to study community demographics in determining the direction of a church's ministry than studying the Scripture 
to see the direction that God wants His church to go. The Scriptures must be forever central in the life and ministry of the church. The Scriptures must be central in the life and ministry of any elder who is worthy to be remembered. An elder is also to be an example for the flock. Look again at verse 7. He says, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Presumably, these elders have died is, is uh, what seems to be happening here. They're no longer around and the writer of Hebrews is saying, Consider their lives as they were among you. Consider the outcome of their life, the way that they died in faith. Because a lot of the elders at this time were being martyred in the early church. And so he says, consider their way of life and imitate their faith. It's not enough for an elder to know Scripture. He must be obeying it. What does James say if you're not obeying the Scriptures? You might be reading it. And then you're like a man who looks at himself in a mirror, immediately going away, forgets what he looks like. It's not enough to read the Scriptures. It's not enough to know the theology. Read it. Obey it. Put it into practice. So an elder's faith must trust the Word of God so much that he lives his life according to it. His life must not work at cross purposes with his teaching and his confession. A little little story just went through my mind from uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon said that there was a pastor whose uh, preaching was so eloquent that people never wanted him to leave the pulpit. But once he left the pulpit, his life was um, was so unethical that uh, once he left the pulpit, no one ever wanted him to go back in it again. In other words, your life, as you are obeying the Scriptures, should be so full of Christ, so full of the Scriptures, that the congregation is able to look at your life, examine your life, observe, and... Uh, imitate you, and in so imitating you, are following the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon also said um, that we have an unchanging gospel, which is not today green grass and tomorrow lifeless hay. In other words, the Scripture is always relevant. The Scripture is the only Uh, way that we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the gospel and the gospel alone that we have a relationship with God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. The deepest need for the human heart is the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whether 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote the script um, wrote his letters when the, the writer of Hebrews wrote uh, this letter. Whether 150 years ago when Spurgeon was preaching or whether today. And the deepest need 
for a congregation is to have elders who believe the Word, who think and meditate deeply upon the Word, who speak the Word to the congregation and are a living example of the Word of God as they obey the Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Moving on from verse 7. Verse 8 seems to be an odd translation. I mean, sorry, odd transition. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's a great verse, but how does it relate to verse 7? For that matter, how does it relate to verse 9? I think the writer of Hebrews is telling the congregation that while remembering and imitating your elders... Don't ever put your trust in them. Elders are sinners. Elders are fallible. Elders will eventually grow old and die. But Jesus Christ? He must be the true object of our faith. He is our true chief elder. He will never fail. He will never die. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, verses 9 through 16 throw the commentators for a loop. The writer speaks of remembering your elders in verses 7 and 8 and tells us to obey and submit your elders to your obey and submit to your elders in verse 17. So you have verses 7 and 8 and verse 17 all talking about remembering your elders, obeying and submitting to your elders, and then you have this odd sandwich in between. How, does, how do these verses relate to verse 7 and 8 and uh, verse 17? How does it relate to the context of what he's saying about elders? Now, these verses have thrown me for a loop as well. So here's my best understanding of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The book of Hebrews uh, as a whole was written to counter a great temptation for the Jewish Christians. And that temptation was to return to Judaism. They grew up in the, with the temple worship. They grew up with the sacrifices. Going to the Levitical priests to offer sin offerings and free will offerings was one of the most solemn of all religious duties uh, for Jewish families. But because Jesus Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice, the Jews, the Jewish Christians, were no longer to uh, offer sacrifices at the temple. The writer, therefore, is seeking to extract or pull these Christians away from the temple um, and sacrificial system because... The, the, the Jewish worship with its sacrifices uh, was empty. It was works-oriented. And so the temple and the altar with all its animal sacrifices was no longer needed. We worship as Christians no longer in the temple. Rather, we worship at the true altar where the true and final sacrifice was offered. The empty, cross, the empty cross of Jesus Christ is the true altar. The empty cross of Jesus Christ is our altar. 
He is no longer on the cross to be re-sacrificed like the endless offerings of bulls and goats. So listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. The writer says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that they are to leave the Jewish system, bypass the sacrifices, and go directly to Jesus Christ. Then the author uses a little wordplay to drive his point home. Jesus did not offer himself inside the temple, on the altar. Rather, he offered himself uh, outside the city. He left the Jewish system to offer himself. And so to be followers of Jesus, the Jews must leave their reliance on on their Jewishness behind if they are going to be saved. Listen to verses 9 through 16 with this I know it's a little awkward explanation, but see if, if you can follow along with what um, the writer is saying, because I don't know that I did a great job explaining what's happening in verses 9 through 16. So Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 9, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice from sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Well, then how does this relate to the elders? The elders were going to be leading the Jewish Christians out of their reliance on on their Jewishness. And it was going to feel uncomfortable. You grow up doing something and all of a sudden, and you think that this is right, and all of a sudden you learn that you must give it up. And so... They were going to lose friends. They were going to lose family uh, who would shun them because they've become Christians. And the elders would be leading them from the safety of the Jewish community to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was going to be a tough transition. But the Jewish Christians would not be leaving behind the familiarity of the Jewish worship and community to follow a simply sinful and fallible leader. 
Rather, their chief elder, the Lord Jesus Christ, he left to be crucified outside the city. In other words, he says, go to him. Because the writer of Hebrews knew that Jesus Christ would go with them through every hardship, with every temptation. He would be with them through every instance of persecution. The Jewish Christians could trust Christ and follow the elders who were following the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. I think this is important for us to understand in our particular moment in history. Uh, We've had the culture wars going on my entire lifetime. The secular ranks within our culture have hated Christianity with a passion. But the way they expressed their hatred was within limits. There was a somewhat common agreement regarding what was ethical or not ethical. And we would disagree with them, but there was still a boundary, so to speak. We'd like to think that there was room for compromise and common cause. But the secular ranks within our culture have practically made compromise and common cause practically impossible. Warren Bridgman and I were talking about this yesterday at the wedding. We may be reaching a point where the security and comfort of simply existing as Christians in our society may be tested. It may be that we will have to leave the the metaphorical city of safety and comfort. I don't mean that we will be homeless. Rather, more and more of us will be forced to suffer loss in order to be faithful in our confession of Jesus Christ. In our willingness to follow our church elders, or even our willingness to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our chief elder, might be severely tested. When I was a college minister up in Philadelphia, uh, I was um, in a church right on the edge of the University of Pennsylvania. So my entire college ministry were undergrads and graduate students. And the graduate students talked about the possibility of them winning a Nobel Peace Prize. And as they would discuss it, they would say, if they find out I'm a Christian, it will be impossible. And so we'd talk about, well, are you willing to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ in the scientific community, even if it means that you will be shut out and shunned. Even if you have some invention that uh, might be great enough to give you the Nobel Peace Prize. One of, one of the, the young men in my, uh, one of the graduate students in my college group it discovered an, an anti-proton uh, at the Fermi Labs up in Chicago, whatever that is. So it was a sharp group. But they were willing. And it may be things that we would have to give up as well. So this passage is telling us that Jesus Christ, our chief elder, loves us enough to go with us and lead us. And he leads us by the leadership he has given us in the local church. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, uh, we are living in evil times, in confusing times. Lord, even as we confess the evil of our society, we confess that we are sinners, only saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Help us to be faithful to Him. Help us to remember that He is always leading us. Lord, I pray for the um, elders of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Help them to be Bible people. Help them to be men of the Word. Help them to live the Word so that they might be uh, gracious and powerful examples for the congregation to follow. And I pray for us as a congregation. Help us to obey them. Help us to submit to their leadership by the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If I